This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Dr Michael Quayle, a consultant paediatric cardiologist at GOSH, who is going to be talking about aortic co-optation. We're going to talk about the pathophysiology, risk factors, presentation and assessment, and also the management of this important condition. This will correspond to the cardiology section of the MRC-PCH syllabus. We hope you find it helpful. So thank you very much, Dr. Quayle, for coming on the show today to talk to me about aortic coarctation. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Could I start by asking, what would you like people to get out of this podcast? I think probably the main thing is to develop an understanding of coarctation of the aorta, what it is, how it presents in the various stages of development in infancy, but also later presentations in adulthood, how we manage it and what the future outlook for patients affected by coarctation of the aorta is. Okay, fantastic. So yeah, let's just start with the basics, I guess. What is aortic coarctation and how common is it? How many children does it affect? So a coarctation of the aorta is essentially a narrowing of the distal portion of the aortic arch. If you remember the kind of the anatomy of the aorta, you have the ascending aorta, then you have the aortic arch, the transverse aortic arch where the, the head and neck vessels originate. And then just beyond or around the origin of the left subclavian artery is the region of the aortic arch where the ductus arteriosus inserts. The ductus arteriosus is that connection between the pulmonary artery and the aorta, which is useful in fetal life for shunting blood from the right side of the heart, avoiding the lungs, given that infants in utero don't need to breathe, bypassing the lungs into the descending aorta. And so that region where the ductus arteriosus inserts into the aorta is called the aortic isthmus. And that's the region which is narrowed in patients with coarctation of the aorta. Relatively speaking, it's, it's quite uncommon. It occurs in about three in 10,000 births. So that's the prevalence. And compared to other forms of congenital heart disease, that's similar to things like transposition of the great arteries or atrioventricular septal defect. Both of those conditions have a similar prevalence. And do we know what causes the stenosis, the narrowing to actually occur in the first place? I don't think we have a fantastic understanding of the very basic pathophysiology of why coarctation of the aorta occurs. We do know that it occurs more commonly in boys than girls, probably in about a two to one sex ratio. It's also commonly associated with Turner syndrome. So putting those together, both patients with Turner syndrome and boys have a single X chromosome compared to girls with two. And so it's likely that there's some dose effect of the X chromosome or its, its protein products, whatever is provided there, somewhat protective in girls compared to boys or patients with Turner syndrome. But beyond that, I don't think we have a very robust understanding of why it occurs. 
And then in terms of risk factors, you mentioned being male and Turner syndrome. Are there any other risk factors that we know of? Those are probably the main risk factors. It is sometimes associated with other forms of congenital heart disease, but those are the most common risk factors. It's a sporadic disease. And as I said, we don't really have a very in-depth understanding of why it occurs. And does it tend to occur in isolation or is it associated with any other cardiac malformations? Hey, so that's a good question. So it does occur in combination with other forms of congenital heart disease. It can occur pretty much with any other form of congenital heart disease, but the most common association is a bicuspid aortic valve. So approximately half of all patients who have coarctation of the aorta have a bicuspid aortic valve, and that can be associated with various other problems. So if you can have a, a diseased bicuspid aortic valve in terms of stenosis or regurgitation, and that can be an important problem that patients have. But often it may be a well-functioning bicuspid valve that may play no significant part in the presentation. It's also important to remember that the converse is, is not true, that it's not 50% of patients with bicuspid aortic valves who have a coarctation of the aorta. And that's a sometimes a little trick question that can come up in exams. It's about 5% of patients with a bicuspid aortic valve who have a coarctation of the aorta. So it is increased, but not as significantly associated. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Moving on now to presentation of aortic coarctation, is there a way in which it typically presents? Yeah. So the, the presentation is really dependent on the degree of narrowing of the coarctation. The classical presentation is in infancy with cardiogenic shock, which occurs uh, due to closure of the ductus arteriosus after birth. And patients with coarctation, there's probably a bit of a delay in the closure of the ductus arteriosus. And so typically around 10 to 14 days of age, an infant may present with kind of a sudden deterioration with respiratory distress, poor feeding, and then cardiogenic shock. And so coarctation of the aorta represents one of the important differential diagnosis of an infant presenting with collapse. We can talk a bit more about that, or we can also think about the later presentations because in patients with perhaps a, a milder form of narrowing, the presentation may not occur in infancy. It may be delayed into later childhood or even into adulthood. And those presentations are typically with a hypertension. So as a secondary cause of hypertension, the other kind of more frequent presentation nowadays with the emergence of fetal diagnosis is actually the diagnosis is made in utero, more at least suspected in utero. And these infants will therefore present with an unknown or suspected diagnosis and their management is a little bit different. The, the benefit of the fetal diagnosis is that hopefully we can prevent patients presenting with cardiogenic shock and we can stabilize them immediately after birth, transfer them to a cardiac center for confirmation of the diagnosis and definitive treatment. And that's depending on the area and the depending of the provision of, of fetal diagnosis, that's probably becoming the majority of neonatal presentations. And thankfully, therefore, cardiogenic collapse and shock is becoming less common. Just thinking a bit more about, you said that whether they present in infancy or later on in childhood was dependent on the degree of the coaptation, so how much it was stenosed. Does the location have any impact? Is it always in the same place or can you have different lengths of the stenotic area and would that impact on presentation at all? Yeah, that's a good question. 
typically it's around the isthmus area. It's, we tend to avoid terms like pre-ductal, post-ductal as much as we used to use them in the past. But the, the precise location of the, of the narrowing is usually opposite the insertion of the ductus arteriosus. It can be associated with some degree of hypoplasia of the aortic arch. So that's a, a, a relative narrowing of the, of the transverse aorta as well. And during repair, that hypoplasia would also need to be attended to. So a treatment of that region, widening it to improve the, the caliber of the whole aorta. You can have stenoses of other parts of the aorta, which can mimic aortic coarctation. Usually later presentations in, in childhood, you could imagine some forms of vasculitis, for example, could result in narrowing of the aorta, which could present something a bit like a coarctation or even perhaps a, an extrinsic compression of the aorta from perhaps even a, a tumor of some description could present in a similar manner. But usually when we talk about coarctation, we're talking about a narrowing of the distal aortic arch in the isthmus with or without some additional narrowing of the transverse aorta. Thinking a bit more now about the infants that present with cardiogenic shock, could you just talk a bit more about the physiological basis for that cardiogenic shock? What is it that triggers the shock at 10 to 14 days of life when the ductus closes? Yeah, so the, the ductus arteriosus in utero is patent and provides, as I mentioned, ability to shunt blood from the right heart into the descending aorta. In patients with coarctation of the aorta, there is a, a kind of a, an abnormality of the, of the aorta in that region. So there's usually what we describe as a shelf or a, a focal protrusion of tissue into the lumen of the aorta. And so as the ductus arteriosus closes, it reduces the caliber of the distal aorta and that increases the, the afterload on the heart. It makes it difficult for blood to be delivered to the lower body. And that is the, the kind of the fundamental abnormality of physiology that produces the cardiogenic shock. And in terms of the differential diagnosis for infants presenting with cardiogenic shock, what would be the important diagnoses to exclude either in a real clinical situation or indeed in an exam question of a child with features of cardiogenic shock? I guess... Initially, the first thing is to decide whether it's cardiogenic. Probably the first thing is that you have a, a collapsed neonate or infant in front of you. And the most important thing and what I would always be wanting to hear from a, a referral would be that sepsis has been considered and, and treated because that's the most common and important consideration, I think, in any infant presenting with, with shock. And that would include, you know, consideration of, of viral infections as well. So antibiotics and perhaps antiviral treatment. But in terms of duct-dependent lesions presenting in a similar way to coarctation of the order, we also need to think about other forms of the systemic duct-dependent lesions, such as critical aortic stenosis or hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Those lesions could present in a similar way to a patient with coarctation of the order. Also, we need to consider duct-dependent pulmonary circulations, things like pulmonary atresia, et cetera, but also non-duct-dependent cardiac conditions such as arrhythmia, heart failure are important as well. But one also needs to consider the other things such as metabolic or poisoning, the other kind of general considerations in an infant presenting with shock in general. Right. Okay. So firstly, ruling out other causes of shock, making sure it is cardiogenic, and then yes. thinking more about your cardiac causes of, of shock within that. Okay. 
And then in terms of narrowing the differential further, are there any features that would point you towards co-optation and away from some of those other causes? So clinically, the, the patients, as well as having the features of shock that I mentioned, would classically have reduced perfusion of the lower body, and that could be detected clinically by the inability to feel the femoral pulses. It might also be detected by measuring the blood pressure in upper and lower limbs, although that can be difficult in infants. That can be difficult to interpret, but certainly if there was a, a perhaps greater than 20 millimeters of mercury difference in the systolic blood pressures between the upper and lower body, that would be suspicious. Certainly in an infant who you are concerned may be presenting with coarctation of the aorta and cardiogenic shock. I think those are probably the main ones. And I think if the clinician is, is unable to differentiate it further or, uh, you know, whenever a, the pentacardic lesion is suspected, it's important just to include that in the treatment algorithm and to start a prostaglandin therapy, which is really the key treatment at this stage to stabilize the infant, open the ductus arteriosus or, or to maintain its patency. And I think that's probably the, the main takeaway message is that if it's considered as part of the differential diagnosis, you know, advice should be sought and treatment should probably be commenced at that stage. Okay, fine. And we'll talk a bit more about treatment in, in a second. Firstly, I just wanted to complete by asking how you would confirm the diagnosis. So what investigations are most helpful for this? Yeah, so the infant would, at this stage, once it's stabilized and prostaglandin treatment has been commenced, uh, the infant would then be transferred to a cardiac center. And usually the diagnosis then would be made by the pediatric cardiology team using echocardiography. Sometimes there is expertise locally, often pediatricians with an expertise in cardiology may be able to provide some assistance with echocardiography and a preliminary diagnosis, but the diagnosis can be quite difficult. And certainly the patient would be transferred to the cardiac center where often prostaglandin might be stopped if the child was, was clinically well, because the, the diagnosis can sometimes be difficult with a very large ductus arteriosus. So often cardiologists will stop prostaglandin for a period in a well infant, not the infant presenting with, you know, classical, very easy to diagnose with a, an obstructed aorta. But if the diagnosis is a bit more difficult, transferred to the cardiac center. And then with echocardiography, often with prostaglandin being stopped to observe the isthmus and the ductus arteriosus to see whether coarctation becomes manifest. So moving on now to talk a bit more about management, what is the management both kind of preoperatively and surgically? Yep. So we've talked a little bit about the resuscitation in general of a collapsed neonate where you have a suspected ductopen systemic circulation and the definitive treatment for that stage being resuscitation with prostaglandin infusion, fluids, inotropes as needed. And then once the child is stabilized and the child may need a period of stabilization in an intensive care unit to optimize the child prior to definitive treatment, the definitive treatment would be surgical repair of the coartation. There are a number of ways to surgically repair coartation. The most commonly employed technique would be to resect the area of narrowing. So to resect the aortic isthmus, ligate the ductus arteriosus and to join the two ends of the aorta together. So an anastomosis, so we call that an end to end anastomosis. I mentioned earlier that there sometimes is some variable degree of hypoplasia of the aortic arch as well. And that would be attended to, and we'd call that usually an extended end-to-end -end anastomosis where the surgeon endeavors to increase the caliber of the aorta at the time of the resection, usually by augmenting the transverse aortic arch in some way. There are other 
surgical approaches. Historically, there was a technique called the left subclavian slap angioplasty repair, which used the left subclavian artery supplying the left arm and using that, ligating it and using it to augment the area of coarctation, turning it down onto the greater curvature of the aorta to augment that area is another type of repair. In terms of the surgical approach, sometimes it can be performed through a, a left lateral thoracotomy for a kind of a simple coarctation. Usually if there's any complexity to the repair, so if you need to augment the transverse arch as well, the operation would be performed through a median sternotomy at the front of the chest. And so in exams, you know, sometimes part of the clinical exam is, is examining the, the chest of a child and try to come up with the diagnosis. A median sternotomy is the, the approach for many forms of congenital heart disease that doesn't really narrow it down, but certainly a left lateral thoracotomy, you know, has a, has a much narrower range of options and, and coarctation will be one of the, the typical operations that will be performed through that route. So those are the, the main forms of repair in infancy. So in the stabilized infant who either had an antenatal diagnosis and did not present with cardiogenic shock was transferred to the cardiac surgical unit on a prostaglandin infusion or in the stabilized child who's been resuscitated following a cardiogenic shock. We also could consider at this stage, the repair in a, in a child or an adult who's presenting later on in life with secondary hypertension. In these cases, surgical repairs can be performed, but probably more often than not percutaneous approach can be performed. So the patient will be treated with balloon angioplasty and stenting of the narrowed segment, usually with a covered stent. So in an adult with coarctation and, and hypertension that could be performed through the groin and the narrowed segment stretched open and a stent placed to maintain the patency of the aorta. That's a very effective treatment, not used obviously in the infant because we need to have growth of the aorta. So in the adult, putting a stent in is a good treatment, but the difficulty with small babies is that they would outgrow their stent. So at the minute, that kind of treatment option is, is not suitable for the infant. Finally, what's the prognosis for these infants following their surgery? So I think it's, it's, it's really good. I think coarctation of the aorta is one of the great success stories in pediatric cardiology because it has it benefited from innovations in the, in the fields, the, the development of prostaglandin infusions to maintain patency and echocardiography to make the diagnosis. And then because we can effectively make the diagnosis now in, in fetal life, we can hopefully avoid the majority of presentations with cardiogenic shock. Once you've had a repair of coarctation, the, the short and medium term outlook is very good. You would expect a very good recovery from that and a relatively low incidence of re-coarctation. Obviously, whenever you resect that segment of the aorta, there is potential for the development of a, of a residual narrowing over time. We call that re-coarctation. That's probably about 10% of cases, and some patients may require a further intervention, usually in the form of a balloon angioplasty or something to stretch that area. And then possibly if in, in an older patient with a larger aorta, sometimes stenting if there's a significant re-coarctation. Probably the most important thing to think about for the future of patients with coarctation is that Despite a repair of the aorta so that you have no residual narrowing, these patients tend to have a very high prevalence of hypertension later on in life. 
And we don't really understand why that's the case, certainly in patients with a, a residual narrowing. But what we do know is that compared to the normal population, patients with coarctation have a significantly increased prevalence up to 50% of patients in adulthood may develop hypertension and that may need to be treated. Certainly surveillance for hypertension as children grow and become adults is really crucial and patients should be encouraged to adopt kind of the normal preventative lifestyle things that can be done to maintain normal blood pressure. Things like maintaining a, a good body weight, so avoiding, you know, avoiding obesity, having regular aerobic type exercise, alcohol in moderation, and where possible, uh, a lower salt diet. Those would be the kind of the normal things that we would recommend to the general population. But I think those are particularly important for patients with coarctation. But then presumably the patients that also have a bicuspid aortic valve should also be surveyed for risk of aortic stenosis as they grow it, up too. Exactly. So in the patients with bicuspid valves, they need surveillance for the development of aortic stenosis regurgitation with age. And that would be part of the kind of the routine surveillance. And when patients come to clinic, usually they would have an echocardiogram looking at the function of their aortic valve and also looking at the caliber of the repair site to see that there hasn't been any significant recortation. Finally, moving on to our final quickfire questions. Firstly, are there any classic exam questions that pop up about this subject? I think we've covered some of them. The, the bicuspid aortic valve question is important. So that's about half of all patients with coarctation have a bicuspid aortic valve, but Conversely, only 5% of patients with bicuspid aortic valve have coarctation of the aorta. I think that's what would be a, a typical multiple choice type question. And then the other one might be a clinical exam in a patient with a left thoracotomy and, you know, considering coarctation of the aorta as part of the differential diagnosis. It's important to measure the pulses. So if a patient had an absent left pulse, the differential diagnosis is, a, is even further narrowed. And that would be a coarctation repair with a left subclavian slap angioplasty repair, or very uncommonly these days, but certainly in, in adult exams might be something like a classical left BT shunt, but I wouldn't expect that in the MRC-PCH exam. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend to listeners about aortic coarctation? I think probably it's always good to revise the kind of guidelines for the management of the infant presenting with shock. So the EPLS guidelines for the management of that, seeing duct-dependent cardiac lesions should be considered and the important role of, of prostaglandin infusions in the management of those patients. And finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? Yeah, so I think, again, that in the infant presenting with shock, coarctation of the order should be considered in the differential diagnosis. Remember always to feel the femoral pulses. That's a, an important clue to the presentation of a, a duct-dependent systemic circulation lesion. Secondly, I think that in the older child or the adult presenting with hypertension, again, coarctation of the order should be considered as, as a cause of secondary hypertension. And again, measurement of blood pressure in the right arm um, and palpation of the femoral pulses is very important in making that diagnosis. And then finally, that late after repair, patients have an increased risk of hypertension. Because of that increased risk of hypertension, they're at risk of the kind of the usual cardiovascular diseases, and that should be part of the long-term surveillance. 
and the advice that patients receive whenever they come to clinic to maintain a healthy lifestyle, avoiding smoking and to maintain a kind of healthy lifestyle that would reduce blood pressure. So as I mentioned before, a healthy weight, low salt diet, alcohol in moderation, the aerobic exercise. Great. Thank you. That was a really interesting talk about aortic coarctation. So very grateful. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRC-PCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.